Section 50 of Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tad Davis. Chapter 14 The Reformation under Edward VI by A. F. Pollard, M.A. Part 1 Woe unto thee, O land, said the preacher, when thy king is a child. The truth of his words did not recommend them to the Parliament of Edward the Sixth, and when Dr. John's story quoted them in his protest against the first act of uniformity, he was sent to expiate his boldness in the Tower. Yet he had all the precedents in English history on his side. Disaster and civil strife had attended the nonage of Henry the Third and Edward the Third, of Richard the Second and Henry the Sixth, and the evils inseparable from the rule of a child had culminated in the murder of Edward the Fifth. When in 1547 a sixth Edward ascended the throne, the signs were few of a break in the uniform ill fortune of royal minorities. Abroad, Paul III was scheming to recover the allegiance of the schismatic realm. The emperor was slowly crushing England's natural allies in Germany. France was watching her opportunity to seize Boulogne. And England herself was committed to a hazardous design on Scotland. At home, there was a religious revolution half accomplished and a social revolution in ferment. Evicted tenants and ejected monks infested the land centers of disorder and raw material for revolt the treasury was empty the kingdom in debt the coinage debased in face of the old nobility of blood stood a new peerage raised on the ruins and debauched by the spoils of the church and created to be docile tools in the work of revolution the royal authority having undermined every other support of the political fabric now passed to a council torn by rival ambitions and conflicting creeds robbed of royal prestige and unbridled by the heavy hand that had taught it to serve but not to direct henry the eighth died at whitehall in the early morning of friday january twenty eighth fifteen forty seven through the night his brother-in-law the earl of hartford and his secretary sir william paget had discussed in the gallery of the palace arrangements for the coming reign Hartford then started to bring his nephew, the young king, from Hatfield, while Henry's death remained a secret. It was announced to Parliament, and Edward was proclaimed early on the following Monday morning. In the afternoon he arrived in London, and an hour or so later the council met in the Tower. Its composition had been determined on St. Stephen's Day, five weeks before, when Henry, acting on an authority specially granted him by Parliament, had drawn up a will, the genuineness of which was not disputed until the possibility of a Stuart succession drew attention to the obstacles it placed in their way to the throne. But the arrangements made in the will for the regency destroyed the balance of parties existing in Henry's later years. Norfolk had been sent to the Tower, and from the sixteen executors who were to constitute Edward's privy council, bishops Gardiner and Thurlby were expressly excluded. To the eleven who had previously been of Henry's council, five were added. Two were the Chief Justices Montague and Bromley, 
but the other three, Denny, Herbert, and North, were all inclined towards religious change. Besides the sixteen executors, Henry nominated twelve assistants, who were only to be called in when the others thought fit. Unless in defiance of the testimony of those present when Henry drew up his will, that selection is to be regarded as due to the intrigues of the reformers, it would seem that Henry deliberately sought to smooth the way for the Reformation by handing over the government to a council committed to its principles. Not half a dozen of its members could be trusted to offer the least resistance to religious change, and when the council assembled in the tower on that Monday afternoon, it only met to register a foregone conclusion. Henry had been given no authority to nominate a protector, but such a step was in accord with precedent and with general expectation, and one at least of the few conservatives on the council thought that the appointment of Hartford to the protectorate afforded the best guarantee for the good government and security of the realm. He was uncle to the king, a successful general, and a popular favorite, and though his peerage was but ten years old, it was older than any other that the council could boast. He was to act only on the advice of his co-executors, but there was apparently no opposition to his appointment as protector of the realm and governor of the king's person. On the following day, the young king and the peers gave their assent. Five days later, Paget produced the list of promotions in the peerage which he and Henry had intended to make. Hartford became Duke of Somerset and Lord High Treasurer and Earl Marshal in succession to Norfolk. Lyle became Earl of Warwick and Risley, Earl of Southampton. Essex was made Marquess of Northampton, and baronies were conferred on Sir Thomas Seymour, Rich, and Sheffield. Half of Henry's alleged intentions were not fulfilled, a strong argument in favor of their genuineness. Russell and St. John had to wait for their promised earldoms, and seven others for their baronies, nor would Paget have then selected Risley for promotion. For scarcely was Edward crowned February 20th, and Henry buried when the Lord Chancellor fell from power. He had been peculiarly identified with the reactionary policy of Henry's later years, and his ambition and ability inspired his colleagues with a distrust, which increased when it was found that, in order to devote more time to politics, he had, without obtaining a warrant from the council, issued a commission for the transaction of chancery business during his absence. A complaint was at once lodged by the common lawyers, ever jealous of the chancery side, and the judges unanimously declared that Southampton had forfeited the chancellorship. A more important change ensued. Doubts of the validity of a dead king's commission had already led the chancellor to seek reappointment at the hands of his living sovereign, and the rest of the council now followed suit. On March 13th, Edward VI nominated a new council of 26. It consisted of the sixteen executors, except Somerset and Southampton, and the twelve assistants named by Henry VIII, but they now held office not in virtue of their appointment by Henry's will, but of their commission from the boy king. At the same time, the protector received a fresh commission. He was no longer bound to act by the advice of his colleagues. He was empowered to summon such counselors as he thought convenient, and to add to their numbers at will. No longer the first among equals, he became king in everything but name and prestige, and the attempt of Henry VIII to regulate the government after his death had, like that of every king before him, completely broken down. Few rulers of England have been more remarkable than a protector into whose hands thus passed 
the despotic power of the tutors. Many have been more successful, many more skilled in the arts of government, but it is doubtful whether any have seen further into the future, or have been more strongly possessed of ideas which they have been unable to carry out. He was born before his time, a seer of visions and a dreamer of dreams. He dreamt of the union of England and Scotland, each retaining its local autonomy as one empire of Great Britain. Having the sea for a wall, mutual love for a defense, and no need in peace to be ashamed or in war to be afraid of any worldly power. Running himself the universal race for wealth, he yet held it to be his special office and duty to hear poor men's complaints, to redress their wrongs, and to relieve their oppression. He strove to stay the economic revolution which was accumulating vast estates in the hands of the few and turning the many into landless laborers or homeless vagrants. But his only success was an act of Parliament whereby he gave his tenants legal security against eviction by himself. Bred in an arbitrary court and entrusted with despotic power, he cast aside the weapons wherewith the tutors worked their will and sought to govern on a basis of civil liberty and religious toleration. He abstained from interference in elections to Parliament or in its freedom of debate and from all attempts to pack or intimidate juries. He believed that the strength of a king lay not in the severity of his laws or the rigor of his penalties, but in the affections of his people, and not one instance of death or torture for religion stains the brief and troubled annals of his rule. The absolutism which came in with the new monarchy and was perfected by Cromwell was relaxed, and the first parliament summoned by the protector on November 4, 1547, effected a complete revolution in the spirit of the laws. Nearly all the treasons created since 1352 were swept away, and many of the felonies. It was indeed still treason to deny the royal supremacy by writing, printing, overt deed, or act, but it was no longer treason to do so by open preaching, express words, or sayings. Benefit of clergy and right of sanctuary were restored. Wives of attainted persons were permitted to recover their dower. Accusations of treason were to be preferred within thirty days of the offense. No one was to be condemned unless he confessed or was accused by two sufficient and lawful witnesses, and proclamations were no longer to have the force of law. The heresy laws, the Act of Six Articles, all the prohibitions against printing the scriptures in English, against reading, preaching, teaching, or expounding the scriptures, and all and every other act or acts of Parliament concerning doctrine or matters of religion, were erased from the statute book. The main result of this newfound liberty was to give fresh impetus to the Reformation in England. The Act of Six Articles, with all its ferocious penalties, had failed to cure diversities of opinion. And the controversies of which Henry complained to his Parliament in 1545 now broke out with redoubled fury. Among a people unused to freedom and inflamed by religious passions, liberty naturally degenerated into license. The tongues of the divines were loosed, and they filled the land with a babel of voices. Each did what was right in his own eyes, and every parish church became the scene of religious experiment. Exiles from abroad flocked to partake in the work and to propagate the doctrines they had imbibed at their respective meccas. Some came from Lutheran cities in Germany, some from Geneva, and some from Zwinglian Zurich. 
In their path followed a host of foreign divines, some invited by Cranmer to form a sort of ecumenical council for the purification of the Anglican Church, some fleeing from the wrath of Charles V or from the perils of civil war. From Strasbourg came in 1547 Pietro Martiri Vermigli, better known as Peter Martyr, a native of Florence and an ex-Augustinian, and Emmanuel Tremelius the Hebraist, a Jew of Ferrara, and from Augsburg came Bernardino Ochino, a native of Siena, once a Franciscan, and then a Capuchin. In 1548, John Alasco, or Lasky, a Polish noble, and his disciple, Charles Utenhova, a native of Ghent, followed from Emden, and in 1549, Martin Bucer and Paul Fagius fled hither from Strasbourg. Jean Veron, a Frenchman from Sens, had been in England eleven years, but celebrated the Era of Liberty by publishing in 1547 a violent attack on the Mass. Most of these were Zwinglians, and even among the Lutherans many soon inclined towards the doctrine of the Swiss Reformers. Of the humbler immigrants who came to teach or to trade, not a few were Anabaptists, Socinians, and heretics of every hue, and England became, in the words of one horrified politician, the harbor for all infidelity. The clamor raised by the advent of this foreign legion has somewhat obscured the comparative insignificance of its influence on the development of the English church. The continental reformers came too late to effect the moderate changes introduced during Somerset's protectorate, and even the second prayer book of Edward the Sixth owed less to their persuasions than has often been supposed. England never became Lutheran, Zwinglian, or Calvinistic, and she would have resented dictation from Wittenberg, Zurich, or Geneva as keenly as she did from Rome, had the authority of Luther, Zwingli, or Calvin ever attained the proportions of that of the Roman pontiff. Each indeed had his adherents in England, but their influence was never more than sectional, and failed to turn the course of the English Reformation into any foreign channel. In so far as the English reformers sought spiritual inspiration from other than primitive sources, there can be no doubt that, difficult as it would be to adduce documentary evidence for the statement, they consciously or unconsciously derived this inspiration from Wycliffe. Like them, he appealed to the state to remedy abuses in the church, attacked ecclesiastical endowments, and gradually receded from the Catholic doctrine of the Mass. The Reformation in England was divergent in origin, method, and aim from all the phases of the movement abroad. It left the English Church without a counterpart in Europe. So insular in character that no subsequent attempt at union with any foreign church has ever come within measurable distance of success. It was, in its main aspect, practical and not doctrinal. It concerned itself less with dogma than with conduct, and its favorite author was Erasmus, not because he preached any distinctive theology, but because he lashed the evil practices of the church. Englishmen are little subject to the bondage of logic or abstract ideas, and they began their reformation not with the enunciation of any new truth, but with an attack upon the clerical exaction of excessive probate dues. No dogma played in England the part that predestination or justification by faith played in Europe. There arose a master of prophetic invective in Latimer, and a master of liturgies in Cranmer, 
but no one meet to be compared with the great religious thinkers of the world. Hence the influence of English reformers on foreign churches was even less than that of foreign divines in England. Anglicans never sought to proselytize other Christian churches, nor England to wage other than defensive wars of religion. In Ireland and Scotland, which appear to afford exceptions, the religious motive was always subordinate to a political end. The Reformation in England was mainly a domestic affair, a national protest against national grievances, rather than part of a cosmopolitan movement towards doctrinal change. It originated in political exigencies, local and not universal in import, and was the work of kings and statesmen, whose minds were absorbed in national problems rather than of divines whose faces were set towards the purification of the universal church. It was an ecclesiastical counterpart of the growth of nationalities at the expense of the medieval ideal of the unity of the civilized world. Its effect was to make the church in England the church of England, a national church recognizing as its head the English king, using in its services the English tongue, limited in its jurisdiction to the English courts, and fenced about with a uniformity imposed by the English legislature. This nationalization of the church had one other effect. It brought to a sudden end the medieval struggle between church and state. The church had only been enabled to wage that conflict on equal terms by the support it received as an integral part of the visible church on earth, and when that support was withdrawn, it sank at once into a position of dependence upon the state. From the time of the submission of the clergy to Henry VIII, there has been no instance of the English church successfully challenging the supreme authority of the state. It was mainly on these lines laid down by Henry VIII that the Reformation continued under Edward VI. The papal jurisdiction was no more. The use of English had been partially introduced into the services of the church. The scriptures had been translated. Steps had been taken in the direction of uniformity, doctrinal and liturgical. And something had been done to remove medieval accretions, such as the worship of images, and to restore religion to what reformers considered its primitive purity. That Henry intended his so-called settlement to be final is an assumption at variance with some of the evidence for he had entrusted his son's education exclusively to men of the new learning. He had given the same party an overwhelming preponderance in the Council of Regency, and according to Cranmer, he was bent in the last few months of his life upon a scheme for pulling down roods, suppressing the ringing of bells, and turning the mass into a communion. Cranmer himself had for some years been engaged upon a reform of the church services, which developed into the first book of common prayer, and the real break in religious policy came not at the accession of Edward VI, but after the fall of Somerset and the expulsion of the Catholics from the Council. The statute procured by Henry VIII from Parliament, which enabled his son on coming of age to annul all acts passed during his minority, was probably due to an overweening sense of the importance of the kingly office but although it was repealed in Edward's first year, it inevitably strengthened the natural doubts of the competence of the council to exercise an ecclesiastical supremacy vested in the king. No government, however, could afford to countenance such a suicidal theory, 
and the council had constitutional right on its side when it insisted that the authority of the king whether in ecclesiastical or civil matters was the same whatever his age might be and refused to consider the minority as a bar to further prosecution of the reformation no doubt they were led in the same direction some by conviction and some by the desire as sir william peter expressed it to fish again in the tempestuous seas of this world for gain and wicked mammon but there was also popular pressure behind them zeal and energy if not numbers were on the side of religious change and the council found it necessary to restrain rather than stimulate the ardor of the reformers one of its first acts was to bind over the wardens and curate of st martin's ironmonger lane to restore images which they had contrary to the king's doctrine and order removed from their church six months later the council was only prevented from directing a general replacement of images illegally destroyed by a fear of the controversy such a step would arouse and it had no hesitation in punishing the destroyers in november fifteen forty seven it sought by proclamation to stay the rough treatment which priests suffered at the hands of london serving men and apprentices and sent round commissioners to take an inventory of church goods in order to prevent the extensive embezzlement practiced by local magnates early in the following year proclamations were issued denouncing unauthorized innovations silencing preachers who urged them and prohibiting flesh-eating in lent in april fifteen forty eight the ecclesiastical authorities were straitly charged to take legal proceedings against those who encouraged by the lax views prevalent on marriage were guilty of such insolent and unlawful acts as putting away one wife and marrying another the marquis of northampton was himself summoned before the council and summarily ordered to separate from the lady he called his second wife similarly the first statute of the reign was directed not against the catholics but against reckless reformers it sought to restrain all who impugned or spoke unreverently of the sacrament of the altar the right of the clergy to tithe was reaffirmed and the canon law as to pre-contracts and sanctuary abolished by henry the eighth was restored it was no wonder that the clergy thought the moment opportune for the recovery of their position as an estate of the realm and petitioned that ecclesiastical laws should be submitted to their approval or that they should be readmitted to their lost representation in the house of commons these measures illustrate alike the practical conservatism of somerset's government and the impracticability of the theoretical toleration to which he inclined his dislike of coercion occasionally got the better of his regard for his own proclamations as when he released thomas hancock from his sureties taken for unlicensed preaching but he soon realized that the government could not abdicate its ecclesiastical functions least of all in the early days of the royal supremacy when the bishops and cranmer especially looked to the state for guidance personally he leaned to the new learning and like most englishmen he was erastian in his view of the relations between church and state and somewhat prejudiced against sacerdotalism yet in spite of the fact that after his death he was regarded as a martyr by the french reformed church he cannot any more than the english reformation be labeled lutheran zwinglian or calvinist 
and when he found it incumbent upon him to take some line in ecclesiastical politics he chose one of comparative moderation and probably the line of least resistance the royal supremacy was perhaps somewhat nakedly asserted when at the commencement of the reign bishops renewed their commission to exercise spiritual jurisdiction and when in the first session of parliament the form of episcopal election was exchanged for direct nomination by royal letters patent but the former practice had been enforced and the latter suggested in the reign of henry the eighth and somerset secured a great deal more episcopal cooperation than did either northumberland or elizabeth convocation demanded unanimously in one case and by a large majority in the other the administration of the sacrament in both kinds and liberty for the clergy to marry and a majority of the bishops in the house of lords voted for all the ecclesiastical bills passed during his protectorate only gardiner and bonner offered any resistance to the visitation of fifteen forty seven and it must be concluded either that somerset's religious changes accorded with the preponderant clerical opinion or that clerical subservience surpassed the compliance of laymen the responsibility for these changes cannot be apportioned with any exactness probably gardiner was not far from the mark when he implied that cranmer and not the protector was the innovating spirit and the comparative caution with which the reformers had first proceeded was as much due to somerset's restraining influence as the violence of their later course was to the simulated zeal of warwick cranmer's influence with the council was greater than it had been with henry the eighth to him it was left to work out the details of the movement and the first step taken in the new reign was the archbishop's issue of the book of homilies for which he had failed to obtain the sanction of king and convocation five years before their main features were a comparative neglect of the sacraments and the exclusion of charity as a means of salvation gardiner attacked the book on these grounds and possibly out of deference to his protest the saving power of charity was affirmed in the council's injunctions to the royal visitors a few months later the homilies were followed by nicholas udall's edition of the paraphrase of erasmus that had been prepared under henry the eighth and was now intended partly no doubt as a solvent of old ideas but partly as a corrective of the extreme protestant versions of tyndall and coverdale which now that henry's prohibition was relaxed recovered their vogue the substitution of english for latin in the services of the church was gradually carried out in the chapel royal as an example to the rest of the kingdom compline was sung in english on easter monday fifteen forty seven the sermon was preached and the te deum sung in english on september eighteenth to celebrate pinky and at the opening of parliament on november fourth the gloria in excelsis the creed and the agnus were all sung in english simultaneously sternhold a gentleman of the court was composing his metrical version of the psalms in english which was designed to supplant the lewd ballads of the people and in fact eventually made psalm singing a characteristic of advanced ecclesiastical reformers the general visitation in the summer and autumn of fifteen forty seven was mainly concerned with performing practical abuses with attempts to compel the wider use of english in services the removal of images that were abused and a full recognition of the supremacy of the boy king 
in november and december convocation recommended the administration of the sacrament in both kinds and liberty for priests to marry but the latter change did not receive parliamentary sanction until the following year the bill against unreverent speaking of the sacrament was by skilful parliamentary strategy which seems to have been due to somerset combined with one for its administration in both kinds the motive being obviously to induce catholics to vote for it for the sake of the first part and reformers for the sake of the second the chantry's bill was in the main a renewal of the act of fifteen forty five but its object was now declared to be the endowment of education and not the defense of the realm and the reason alleged for suppression was the encouragement that chantries gave to superstition and not their appropriation by private persons such opposition as this bill encountered was due less to theological objections than to the reluctance of corporations to surrender any part of their revenues and gardner subsequently expressed his concurrence in the measure its effect on guilds was to convert such of their revenues as had previously been devoted to obits and masses into a rent paid to the crown but a bill which was introduced a year later and passed the house of commons to carry out the intentions of founding schools alleged in the chantries act disappeared after its first reading in the house of lords on february eighteenth fifteen forty nine immediately after the prorogation in january fifteen forty eight questions were addressed to the bishops as to the best form of communion service the answers varied some being in favor of the exclusive use of english some of the exclusive use of latin the form actually adopted approaches most nearly to tunstall's recommendation a compromise whereby latin was retained for the essential part of the mass while certain prayers in english were adopted this new order for communion was issued in march fifteen forty eight a proclamation ordering its use after easter was prefixed and in a rubric all varying of any rite or ceremony in the mass was forbidden a more decided innovation was made in february when by proclamation the council ordered the removal of all images under the impression that this drastic measure would cause less disturbance than the widespread contentions as to whether the images were abused or not ashes and palms and candles on candlemas day had been forbidden in january and soon afterwards a proclamation was issued against the practice of creeping to the cross on good friday and the use of holy bread and holy water these prohibitions had been contemplated under henry the eighth they met with guarded approval from gardiner and they were comparatively slight concessions to the reformers in a proclamation the main purpose of which was to check unauthorized innovations the council also sought to remove a fruitful cause of tumult by forbidding the clergy to preach outside their own cures without a special license how far this bore hardly on the catholics depends upon the proportion of catholics to reformers among the beneficed clergy but it is fairly obvious that it was directed against the two extremes the ejected monks on the one hand and the itinerant hot gospelers on the other these measures were temporary expedients designed to preserve some sort of quiet pending the production of the one uniform and godly order of service towards which the church had been moving ever since the break with rome 
the assertion of the national character of the English Church necessarily involved an attempt at uniformity in its services. The legislation of 1547 seemed to imply unlimited religious liberty and to leave the settlement of religious controversy to public discussion, but it was not possible to carry out a reformation solely by means of discussion. Local option, too, was alien to the centralizing government of the Tudors, and unchecked might well have precipitated a thirty years' war in England. Uniformity, however, was not the end which the government had in view, so much as the means to ensure peace and quietness. Somerset was less anxious to obliterate the liturgical variations between one parish and another than to check the contention between Catholics and Reformers, which made every parish the scene of disorder and strife, and the only way he perceived of effecting this object was to draw up one uniform order, a compromise and a standard which all might be persuaded or compelled to observe. Nor was the idea of uniformity a novel one. There were various uses in medieval England, those of York, Hereford, Lincoln, and Sarum, but the divergence between these forms of service was slight, and before the Reformation, the Sarum use seems to have prevailed over the greater part of the kingdom. End of section 50. Recording by Tad Davis.